Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Our affairs with France retained the posture which they held at my last communication to you. Notwithstanding the authorized expectation of an early as well as favorable issue to the discussions on foot, these have been procrastinated to the latest date. The only intervening occurrence meriting attention is the promulgation of a French decree purporting to be the definitive repeal of the Berlin and Milan decrees. This proceeding, although made the ground of the repeal of the British orders in council, is rendered by the time and manner of it liable to many objections. The final communications from our special minister to Denmark afford further proofs of the good effects of his mission and of the amical disposition of the Danish government. From Russia, we have the satisfaction to receive assurances of continued friendship and that it will not be affected by the rupture between the United States and Great Britain. Sweden also professes sentiments favorable to the subsisting harmony. With the Barbary powers, excepting that of Algiers, our affairs remain on ordinary footing. The consul general residing with that regency has suddenly and without cause been banished, together with all American citizens found there. Whether this was the transitory effect of capricious despotism or the first act of predetermined hostility is not ascertained. Precautions were taken by the consul on the latter supposition. James Madison, Annual Message to Congress, November 4, 1812. The last couple of episodes, we've been examining the beginning of the War of 1812 from the American perspective. However, in order to truly understand this conflict, we're going to have to continue to bounce back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean to stay aware of what was transpiring in Europe around the same time as campaigns were being launched in North America. Though there would be a delay as news went back and forth between the continents, as we shall see as we go along, news would impact developments on both sides of the Atlantic. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Arjun of the Deep End History Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Arjun is described as a tailspinner, and in each episode of Deep End History, a story is woven and laid out for the audience to explore and understand be it the tale of Olga of Kiev in the 10th century, or the campaigns of Sulla in the 2nd century BCE, or the life of Fred Hampton of Chicago in the 1960s. Once a new episode of Deep End History drops, wherever Arjun transports you in history, you know you're in for a fascinating tale. Thus, I hope once you're done with this episode, you'll give Deep End History a listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'll also have information about Deep End History on the page for this episode on my website, which is presidenciespodcast.com. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. 
On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the world makes history fun again. Since John Armstrong's departure in 1810, U.S. Charge d'Affaires Jonathan Russell had been responsible for holding things down at the Paris legation until the arrival of a new U.S. minister. Now, when Armstrong left, both he and Russell had hoped that Russell would be named as Armstrong's successor. As described by historian Peter P. Hill, quote, Russell brought to the post a wide range of expertise. Well-versed in maritime issues from his recent consular duties in Hamburg, he also had experience as a successful businessman actively engaged in transatlantic commerce. However, as noted by historian Richard Buell Jr., quote, President Madison thought Russell was too inexperienced for so important a post as U.S. Minister to France. Thus, as we discussed in episode 4.18, Madison tapped Joel Barlow for the post, but there was a deliberate delay in Barlow taking up this new position so that he could get as much information as possible from French minister to the U.S. Louis Soulier prior to his departure. Finally, though, just over a year after Armstrong's departure from the French capital, Barlow arrived in Paris on September 19, 1811. Though Barlow had just missed French Emperor Napoleon, who had departed for Holland the same day that he arrived in town, the French foreign minister, the Duc de Bassano, invited Barlow to meet with him on the 21st and they met again the next day for two hours prior to Bassano's departure from the city to join the emperor in Holland. From existing primary documents from both men, it seems like their initial conversations went well, and Barlow was confident that he could negotiate a full commercial treaty with the French imperial government. Russell, meanwhile, learned from Barlow that he was being reassigned to London. While again not being named as a full minister, the London posting would at least give Russell extra gravitas as it was a crucial posting in the lead-up to the war. As Buell noted, though, quote, the choice of Russell for London turned out to be one of Madison's less happy ones. Russell's failure to anticipate Britain's revocation of its orders in council in June 1812 helped bring on a war that need not have been fought. Now, to be fair to Russell, and as we discussed in episode 4.19, it seemed that there was little movement from the government of Prime Minister Spencer Percival prior to his assassination on May 11, 1812. Then, given the fact that there was such uncertainty as to who would succeed him afterwards, I'm not sure how much blame can be assigned to Russell for not predicting that the Earl of Liverpool would come out on top and immediately seek a repeal of the orders, particularly since, as we shall soon see, there was much more that the Liverpool government would be working to keep abreast of in Europe. For now, though, just know that Russell headed off to London after helping Barlow and William Lee, who would be acting secretary for the legation, get acclimated to their new roles in Paris. While French Foreign Minister Bassano was away, Barlow worked to prepare, quote, a three-point program addressing the French concern that British goods were fraudulently winning access to France's markets under the guise of being American property, a plan which he shared with Bassano on November 9th after his return to Paris. On November 17th, 
Barlow was officially presented to French Emperor Napoleon at his Chateau Saint-Cloud, and at a subsequent audience in December, the Emperor singled the American minister out for recognition twice. Those small gestures, they did seem to be deliberate overtures, and Barlow got, quote, back-channel assurances that Napoleon was considering fundamental changes in his commercial policy. Meanwhile, another offer came his way. Barlow was approached by a Spanish agent purporting to be an emissary of the Spanish king Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's brother that he had installed on the throne, as discussed back in episode 3.39. This agent, quote, proposed a treaty in which Spain confirmed the title of the United States not only to the territory purchased from France in 1803, but to all of the Floridas and much of northern Mexico. While Barlow was excited about the prospect, as it was what the Jefferson and Madison administrations had been trying to achieve for years, Madison viewed this offer a bit more critically, as I imagine longtime listeners of presidencies are as well. It just seemed a little too good to be true. Even if it was a legitimate offer, as we've seen in recent episodes, Joseph didn't really have authority over the Spanish colonies in the Americas. So how much did him offering to hand these over to the U.S. really mean? Meanwhile, there was also a possibility that this was a test. As Buell notes, quote, Madison suspected the French foreign ministry of planning the proposal in order to see how desperate Barlow had become to negotiate a treaty. Madison by this point had little hope for a larger treaty with France, as he felt they would use it as a way to stall any movement on issues between the two nations, and recommended that Barlow concern himself in dealing with specific issues that American merchants were experiencing with French officials. As 1811 gave way to 1812, however, Barlow continued to press Bassano to negotiate a treaty. Though the two signed a joint statement, quote, committing to commercial negotiations on December 31st, as they had done with so many other previous U.S. ministers to France, the Napoleonic government kept alive the hope of negotiations, while at the same time doing all they could to forestall making firm commitments. Meanwhile, word continued to arrive from back home about the American march to war with Britain. News of the Henry letters and the embargo though delayed, finally arrived in Europe, and with each passing dispatch, Barlow grew increasingly concerned that war was near. Then, he learned of the revocation of the British Orders in Council and hoped that news might arrive in the U.S. in time. By early July, however, it was clear that war was a foregone certainty. Thus, Barlow did what he could to prepare for supporting American merchant ships who would be impacted and, quote, for the accommodation of American privateers in French ports. By that point, the attention of the French emperor was firmly focused not on matters to the west, but rather on a new military campaign to the east. As noted in episode 4.19, the Russian government was well aware that Napoleon was preparing to launch a campaign against them. Indeed, Napoleon made no secret of his departure from Paris on May 9, 1812. As noted by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, For the first and final time in his career, he, i.e. Napoleon, left in broad daylight, in a magnificent regal procession of carriages, with Empress Marie-Louise at his side and a major retinue of imperial officials. On June 24, 1812, Russian Tsar Alexander learned from a message delivered by a special courier that French troops had crossed 
the Neiman River, which at that point was the Russian border. The Tsar wrote to the French emperor about the violation of Russian sovereignty and asserted that, quote, if your majesty has no wish to spill the blood of his people over a misunderstanding of this nature, and if he agrees to withdraw his troops from Russian territory, I shall choose to overlook the matter. It lies within your majesty's hands alone to spare mankind the calamities of another war. Napoleon made himself clear when he wrote back, quote, I have undertaken great preparations, and my forces are three times greater than yours. At this time, with the whole of Europe behind me, how do you expect to be able to stop me? The further that Napoleon and the Grande Armée marched into Russian territory, the more frustrated the French emperor got. Rather than engaging Russian forces, the force from the West found no military opposition. Even worse, though, they found few supplies to sustain them, and thus could not remain in one point for long without having to move on. As described by Schoen, quote, Napoleon's mighty force was phenomenal in size and strength as it continued its advance. They were marching by the thousands, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands. It was incredible. It was fascinating. It was awe-inspiring. But above all, it was terrifying. The troops that composed the Grande Armée came from across Napoleon's continent-spanning empire. It was unlike any other force that Europe had seen. It was also composed of people. And such a large group of people, nearly 612,000 military forces and over 25,000 civilians and officials, needed a large amount of food. In his eagerness to engage the Russians, Napoleon had not taken the time to plan for the logistics of maintaining his force. Instead, he anticipated a quick, decisive battle. However, now he had a large military force that had already marched hundreds of miles that was growing more tired by the mile as Napoleon continued to march them further into Russia. The weather did not help his chances either, for, as noted by Schoen, quote, there were spells of wilting, almost subtropical heat, as columns of hundreds of thousands of men under heavy kit and 300,000 horses kicked up miles-long dust clouds, literally choking man and beast alike, followed by sudden torrential, monsoon-like rains that persisted for days on end, turning hard, deeply rutted roads into axle-deep quagmires. From the moment the French crossed the Neiman, there were ceaseless bottlenecks of enormous proportions on every route. Meanwhile, the 409,000-strong Russian army continued to retreat further and further into their territory. It was nearly a month before French forces actually engaged the Russians in battle at Moilev, but the casualties were not devastating and the Russian army kept moving. By August 6th, the Russian military command came to the conclusion that enough damage had been inflicted on Napoleon's forces that they could finally launch a counterattack. The Battle of Smolensk in mid-August, however, was a decisive Russian defeat. The French emperor needed some good news because reports from the Peninsular War to the southwest were not promising. The British had been fighting alongside Portuguese forces since 1808, as mentioned in episode 4.4, 
and had allied with Spanish forces opposing the Bonapartist Spanish government. On July 22, 1812, the coalition forces, with British Lord Wellington in command, achieved a major victory over the French army at Salamanca, Spain. Meanwhile, the French siege of Cadiz, which was the capital of the rival Spanish government headed by the legislative body known as the Cortes, was finally forced to be lifted in August after over two years. Napoleon needed to strike against the Russian army fast and serve up a decisive win. Russian forces were gathering near the village of Borodino, so the French emperor aimed his troops that way. However, the force still at Napoleon's disposal was greatly reduced. By this point, he was at a strength of 131,000. Yes, you're hearing that right. From over 600,000, this grand force that Napoleon had assembled had dwindled by that much. And, as noted by Scholm, quote, morale and divisions within the French command and in the ranks were already at a dangerous level. The physical and mental condition of Napoleon's men of all ranks could be described at best as fading fast, as malnutrition, disease, and a despairing homesickness made rapid inroads. Though the Battle of Borodino on September 7th was technically a French victory, it came at a heavy cost. Napoleon's force suffered over 40,000 casualties. Though the Russians suffered a bit more at around 50,000 dead or wounded, with Napoleon describing afterwards that, quote, these Russians let themselves be killed as if they were not men, but mere machines refusing to surrender. The Russian army was still intact upon their retreat, and, as a commentator noted later, quote, the Russians made such an orderly retreat, such as no enemy has ever made, not leaving a single cart, that they were still a force that would live to fight another day. The Grand Armée, meanwhile, limped into Moscow as less of a conquering force and more like they were seeking any life raft they could get. The French wounded took every available bed at every hospital in Moscow, but there still remained, quote, tens of thousands without beds. We'll leave Napoleon and his army there for now and travel back west to get better acquainted with the newest figure in our narrative to take up the role of Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Lord Liverpool. For those familiar with British history, you may recall that we actually met Lord Liverpool a long way back in our narrative in the early days of the Jefferson presidency when Liverpool, then styled Robert Banks Jenkinson, Lord Hawkesbury, served as the Foreign Secretary in the Ministry of Henry Addington from 1801 to 1804. Liverpool, born in 1770, had come from a lineage of money and privilege. As noted by historian Dick Leonard, quote, his father, Charles Jenkinson, was descended from a long line of baronets going back to the reign of Charles II, but whose fortune dated back to Anthony Jenkinson, a sea captain and merchant venturer in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, who had finished up as her ambassador to the Tsar of Russia and the Shah of Persia. Liverpool quickly followed his father into politics, being elected as a member of parliament at age 20, though he wouldn't take up the seat until after he turned 21 and attached himself to his father's friend, William Pitt the Younger. He had impressed King George III enough that, upon the death of Pitt in 1806, it had been to Hawkesbury that the king had first turned to succeed Pitt as prime minister. However, as he felt that, quote, he would not be able to form a viable government, Hawkesbury passed on this opportunity. 
He would go on to serve in the Portland and Percival ministries until, as we already discussed in episode 4.19, six years after first being approached to serve, Liverpool was able to ascend to the ministership. One of the first acts that Liverpool did was to push through the repeal of the Orders in Council that had, for years, been a major point of contention between the United States and Britain. On July 30th, however, word arrived in London that the United States had declared war prior to news of the repeal arriving. The Liverpool Ministry initially hoped that the conflict could be avoided when instructions that they had sent previously were received in Washington. Unfortunately for them, the British minister to the U.S., Augustus Foster, had already left his post before their instructions of June 17 to him arrived. In addition to announcing the repeal of the orders, British Foreign Secretary Lord Castlereagh had included in his instructions a, quote, threat to restore them, i.e. the orders, unless America lifted restrictions on British trade within a fortnight of receiving the news. Now, Castlereagh had directed Foster, quote, to avoid specifics until he received more detailed instructions. But it wouldn't be Foster who received this dispatch from London. Instead, it was a secretary, Anthony Baker, who was younger and less experienced at diplomacy. Thus, he rushed the instructions over to the State Department upon receipt and revealed the details of the threat, as well as the time limit that had been given by the foreign ministry. As you can imagine, Madison and his administration did not take too kindly to this, especially since they had already declared war on the British. Soon after, Baker received another dispatch dated June 25th, where Castlereagh walked back the imperious tone of his earlier instructions and, quote, abandoned the two-week deadline, permitted Foster to arrange American repeal with Monroe, and eliminated the threat to restore the orders in 1813. Further, if the French persisted in their continental system intended to strike at British trade, though the British government would, quote, consider new trade controls, this time, they would ensure that they were, quote, more acceptable to the American government than those hitherto pursued. As noted by Perkins, quote, For the first time, a British ministry proposed to take American wishes into consideration before setting maritime policy. However, the damage had already been done. President Madison, quote, declined to receive Baker to hear this more conciliatory offer. Even after they learned of the declaration of war, the Liverpool ministry hoped that there may be a chance for reconciliation and sent the same offers put forward in Castlereagh's dispatch of June 25th across the Atlantic with Admiral Sir John Borlace Warren, who was assuming office as commander of all British naval forces in the Western Hemisphere. Though not granted authority to negotiate, Warren sent on this message to Washington on September 30th at the conclusion of his transatlantic journey. Secretary of State Monroe replied a month later, however, demanding that the policy of impressment be ended also before the U.S. would be willing to call for a cessation of hostilities. With nothing left to do, Warren departed to take up his military post. Warren's offer came at a point that the Madison administration had already made up their minds on how they wanted to approach a last-ditch diplomatic effort, and these moves had been put into play months prior. President Madison and Secretary of State Monroe, soon after the declaration of war, had decided to let Jonathan Russell be their agent to start negotiations with the British. Thus, on June 26th, Monroe sent instructions to Russell, authorizing him to, quote, stipulate an armistice if the government in London agreed to lift the orders in council 
and end the process of impressment. The American administration offered in return, quote, to prohibit by law the enlistment of foreign seamen in her merchant marine. A little over a month later, on July 27th, Monroe sweetened the deal a bit, empowering Russell, quote, to consider informal assurances on impressment an adequate preliminary to an armistice. Upon receiving Monroe's first letter in late August, Russell immediately sent the offer and the American conditions to British Foreign Secretary Lord Castlereagh. The Liverpool Ministry, however, considered the American proposal to be against their best interests as they felt the offer of prohibiting the enlistment of foreigners in the American Merchant Marine likely to be ineffective while they would be giving up something key to British naval policy. With Castlereagh's refusal of the American offer, Russell requested his passports so that he could depart from London. Before he left, though, Monroe's second letter arrived, and he went to Castlereagh's home that evening to share its contents with the Foreign Secretary. On September 18th, an official note to Russell arrived. No deal. Indeed, as noted by Perkins, quote, the Foreign Secretary even professed to find the second offer more dishonorable than the first. Thus, on September 20th, Jonathan Russell departed from London, and all diplomatic contact between the U.S. and Great Britain was ended. Prospects were not looking any brighter for Americans in the Mediterranean in the latter half of 1812. As noted in episode 4.19, the British government, prior to the American declaration of war, had sent a not-too-subtle message to the day of Algiers, Haji Ali bin Khalil, urging him to strike an American commerce in the Mediterranean in order to aid the British should the U.S. and the United Kingdom end up at war. Indeed, there was little that U.S. Consul at Algiers Tobias Lear could do during the spring of 1812 as British government officials, both on the scene and from afar, did all they could to cultivate the day. The day, in turn, made a point of rubbing this in Lear's face any opportunity he could, even summoning Lear to his palace on the pretext of translating a flattering letter to him from the British Prince Regent. Meanwhile, Lear was on the lookout for the ship carrying the annual tribute from the U.S. to hopefully keep in the day's good graces. Lear's son Lincoln arrived on July 15th and brought news that the Allegheny, the ship carrying the day's tribute, had initially set out in February but had sprung a leak and had to turn back to port. Thankfully, they wouldn't have to wait much longer, for on the 17th, the Allegheny appeared in the Algerine Harbor. The day could now get his tribute. Three days later, however, things would start to go awry. On the evening of the 20th, Lear received a terse note from the day. He was outraged to, quote, find that there were only 50 small kegs of gunpowder and four cables on board the Allegheny for the Regency of Algiers. This was far less than the day had demanded. Further, not only did the Allegheny have on board cargo not intended for the day, quote, which he asserted showed the Americans' disrespect for his person as he was being treated just like anyone else receiving merchant goods, it was doubly insulting that the Allegheny had on board a large shipment of coffee intended for the Emperor of Morocco. Lear sprung into action and offered to give the day the cargo on board another American brig, the Paul Hamilton. However, this would not placate the Algerine leader. He demanded that Lear pay him 21,000 sequins, or the equivalent of $27,000, or he would put the American consul in chains. Lear knew 
that this was no idle threat. While Lear desperately tried to get a loan to pay off the day, his wife and son packed up all of the Lear's belongings that they could carry with them aboard the Allegheny. By the 25th, arrangements had been finalized. The day would get his payoff, and the Lears and all other Americans in Algiers were ordered to leave the Barbary State, which they promptly did. This, however, would not be the day's final action against Americans. The American brig Edwin had set sail from Salem, Massachusetts in March 1812 and made her way across the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. Not knowing that war had been declared a couple of months prior between the two nations, the Edwin in early August joined a convoy led by the British Royal Navy. However, the Edwin proved to be quote-unquote a dull sailor and lost track of the convoy one evening. Out in the Mediterranean by themselves, this American brig proved to be a sitting duck for an Algerine frigate, and they surrendered without a fight. In addition to not being aware that their nation was at war with Britain, the 11 Americans aboard the Edwin didn't know that the Algerine Day had that month, quote, declared open season on American merchant ships. They would be joined in prison in Algiers a few weeks later by another American captured from a neutral Spanish ship. With no American diplomatic official in direct communication with the Algerine government, or indeed anywhere nearby, the prospects were dim for their being released anytime soon. Still, they did have someone actively working on their behalf, despite the fact that he was facing a challenging situation himself. Tobias Lear, his family, and the rest of the folks on board the Allegheny arrived in Gibraltar on July 28th, anticipating that they would be headed back to the U.S. before long. On August 8th, however, they learned that their stay would be extended as British officials seized the Allegheny after receiving word that the U.S. and Britain were at war. As noted by Lear biographer Ray Bryden, quote, While in Gibraltar, the Lears lived in a strange half-world. They weren't prisoners, but neither were they free. Lear, as the ranking U.S. representative on the scene, took it upon himself to advocate, quote, for the welfare of Americans imprisoned at Gibraltar and, at least for a time, managed to remain in the good graces of the British. When he learned of the fate of the crew of the Edwin, Lear sent a plea to the Swedish consul in Algiers, Johan Norderling, asking him to intervene on behalf of the Americans. Norderling would do so, making sure the Americans had what they needed and taking the captain, George E. Smith, into his own house. That, however, was the extent that Lear could do for the prisoners at Algiers, for in mid-November, his relationship with British officials in Gibraltar started sour. And on December 1st, the Lears made their way to Cadiz, Spain. Now that the siege was over, and with the anti-Bonapartist government of Spain still being on friendly terms with the U.S. despite the whole Florida situation, the Lears were able to stay with the U.S. consul there and witness developments with the Cortez government before... On February 14, 1813, American vessels arrived in the port and they were able to arrange transport back to the U.S. On April 9th, after nearly a decade abroad, Tobias and Fanny Lear were back in the U.S. This seems like a good place to start wrapping up this episode, but before I do so, I'd like to wrap up the narrative of a historical figure who has been a part of our narrative since episode 1.3. Though I did not mention it when he popped up in this episode, if the name Tobias Lear sounds familiar to longtime listeners of this podcast, it's because this is the same Tobias Lear 
who was the private secretary for George Washington during his presidency. Though Lear didn't appear in the Adams presidency series, he came back in during the Jefferson series, which is where he was tapped for diplomatic service, first in Saint-Domingue, then in North Africa. Upon his return to the U.S. in early 1813, Lear would spend some time out of public service, but on June 27, 1814, Secretary of State Monroe called him back to help with negotiations over an exchange of prisoners of war with the British. After successfully concluding the negotiations, President Madison offered Lear a position as an accountant in the War Department. At first, Lear refused, fearing that, quote, he didn't have the bookkeeping experience necessary for the accountant post. But shortly thereafter, he reconsidered, and before long, he was in Washington, D.C. This meant that he was there for, spoiler alert, the British attack on the American capital. Lear was tasked with preserving the War Department's records, and apparently the credit goes to him that the records were diligently saved from the flames that consumed the department's offices. Sadly, Lear would not see the end of the Madison presidency. At the age of 54, Tobias Lear of New Hampshire, the man who had served Washington, Jefferson, and Madison, died by suicide on October 11, 1816, and was buried in the Congressional Cemetery. The National Intelligencer posted a story of his passing and asserted that, quote, his private life was exemplary, and he filled various public stations under successive administrations with deserved reputation. His loss is deeply lamented by his family and friends. The Madison presidency will see many mainstays that have been with us since the beginning of the podcast fade into the annals of history, be it individuals, practices, or political factions. The further we get from George Washington and the legacy of the Revolution, the further we go into a new era, and we'll get to explore how this reshapes both the presidency and the United States as a whole. That, however, is for future episodes. For now, though, our time together is drawing to a close. Thank you so much to Arjun for providing the intro quote for this episode, and please be sure to check out Deep Into History anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Special thanks also to Alex Van Rose for the audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Alex's services for your podcast, just go to Fiverr, that's with two R's at the end, dot com slash Alexander Roses, all one word. I'll also have a link to Deep Into History and Alex's Fiverr page on the source section for this episode on my website, which is presidenciespodcast.com. Special thanks also to the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hall's Victory as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand for our intro and outro music. You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. I also received a new five-star review on Apple Podcasts from Joseph titled, Incredibly Intriguing. His review reads as follows, quote, What an interesting idea for a show and an important one. This is the stuff they don't teach you in history class that they should. Jerry is also incredibly well-spoken, and it's clear he's incredibly passionate about the truth. Thank you so much, Joseph, and thanks to all of you who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, on my website, or anywhere else you can leave a rating and review. 
Not only do I appreciate your kind words, but it also helps others to know why they too should give presidencies a listen. If you'd like to take a moment to leave a review, you can do so quickly and easily on my website at presidenciespodcast.com. And once you're there, just go to reviews at the menu at the top. At the website, you can also find the sources used for this episode, previous episodes of the podcast, and links to resources on all of the presidents. If you'd like to reach out with questions or comments, feel free to send an email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also reach out via social media. I'm available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Last, but certainly not least, I thank all of you for listening. It is a privilege and my pleasure to be on this journey through presidential history with you. And I hope you'll join me next time as we continue to explore the Madison presidency. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.